0: Now the lounge is full of farmers for the 7:30 draw. Teammates all left before they had to buy a round. When they pull the 50-50 and I lost Hey everybody, welcome back to the Rocks Across the Pond Curling Podcast. Thank you for joining us for episode 3 coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee. And joining me, not from Southampton, England, but from here in the U.S., is our Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how is it to be back in the States?
1: It's nice. It's it's sunny in San Francisco. It's never been sunny when I've been here before. It's like 72 and sunny. Went out for a walk, got a breakfast burrito, nice chill Sunday afternoon here. So, yeah, having a good
0: time. How does it compare to what the weather is back in Southampton right now?
1: Uh, Southampton would be 50s and rainy is my hunch. I haven't checked the weather app today, but it's pretty much... Pretty much England never really gets below 40 and never really gets much above 70. So you're kind of always in a pretty small temperature band and it basically rains 70% of the time,
0: so... And you are ready for Las Vegas weather starting Friday of next week, correct? I think it's going to be mid, uh, what, low to mid to high 80s? Yeah, mid yeah, mid 80s, high 80s, uh, the whole time you're going to be there.
1: I'm going to have to get a pair
0: of shorts, to be
1: honest. it just dawned if I didn't pack any shorts, so I'll, Target is right across the street from my hotel, so I'll go there and get a pair of shorts for do you even own the heat.
0: Do you, do you even own shorts now that you live in England?
1: Honestly, I'm down to two pairs. I got I've got a pair of cargo shorts that are just really old, and then I got one pair of shorts. It's like there's about two three weeks in like August every year where it kind of is sunny and gets out to eighty, so I might bust out the shorts, but like it never it never gets anywhere near ninety or hundred, so you don't really need shorts ever.
0: All right, so. And you've said, you said Friday you're basically landing and then almost going straight to Orleans Arena for, for yeah. I, don't, I don't know, is, is that going to be a round-robin draw? Or are they going to be in the playoffs by then?
1: I think that is last game of the round-robin, if I'm correct. Okay. And then I did not buy – so Mark and I, the, the packages didn't work out well, but the ones they were offering you kind of had to be there – like get in Thursday and I couldn't i have got a, I'm at a conference here in San Francisco and my talk is uh, like 8am on the Friday. So Friday is a bit of a busy day. Um, but yeah, so I decided not to get the Saturday morning thing. Just, you know, it, it, they are knockout games, but it was at eight in the morning and I figured we'd probably stay out and have some fun Friday night. And uh, there's still two more draws that day and two more draws Sunday. So I figure five, six hours in arena is a, uh, enough curling for a day. And I yeah. want to see some of the other things around the arena, check out the patch area, maybe see a bit of Vegas. So, we're doing do the court, we'll basically do the the semis, the finals and uh the bronze game, I guess. All
0: right. Yeah, and I yeah, it looks like that 6:30 that 6:30 p.m. Pacific game that you that that draw appears to be the last. The last of the regular draws, yeah. They just, uh yeah. You're definitely going to want to skip the the 8 a.m. draw there in there in Vegas. I think I uh, I just watched the U.S. lose to the Netherlands. We're recording this on a Sunday afternoon, and that draw started at 8:30 a.m. Vegas time. And between it being 8:30 a.m. in Vegas and Canada not playing, the arena looked like exactly how you would expect it to look for the morning draw in Las Vegas. <laughs>
1: How is... Um, so what was the attendance like, like last night on the TV? What did it look like? Decent last, or
0: Last night it looked decent, um, especially since Canada was playing Scotland. And you can tell that there are a lot of Canadians uh, there for the Worlds. I imagine that that attendance will slowly rise as we get to the weekend. I imagine a lot of the Canadians bought that package that you were talking about where you get those last few round-robin draws, and then the playoffs. I'm not sure how many people can afford can afford to spend nine days in Vegas for the whole thing, but yeah, the, yeah, the attendance last night was fine, and then this morning was exactly what you'd expect. Um, so the complaint from Brad Gushu last night, and so far you have proven to be Nostradamus. In the last episode, uh, you said to watch for Bruce Mewitt and Jaap van Dorp from the Netherlands, And both of those guys have pulled kind of surprising upsets here the last few draws. Moet beat Gushu last night, and Van Dorp just finished upsetting the Americans uh, this morning. And then after the game last night, Gushu was talking about the ice and said uh, that it was slower than they expected. It wasn't curling as much. He said they weren't able to get rocks um, around... Uh, rocks that were in the eight-foot, so he, they weren't able to play the game that they were used to playing. And he said, expect for us to be kind of boring until the ice keens up.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I, yeah, I guess I, I haven't seen the game, so I'm not sure what, what kind of times they post. Like 13 and a half seconds hog to hog or 14 seconds?
0: or They aren't doing they it at all? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen that, and I haven't heard the announcers um, mention that, at least last night. Uh, Pete yeah. fin- Pete Finson wasn't mentioning it on the NBC feed um
1: yeah so I mean sure. normally
0: normally like the the kind of ice gushu likes is probably
1: 14 and a half seconds hog mm-hmm. to hog so if it's like 13 and a half or 14 that's a bit closer to club kind of conditions and it's a bit harder to play kind of a pretty aggressive game that way
0: yeah and then this this morning you heard the mics picked up persinger and Ruinen talking about how difficult it was to get rocks to the center line. Um, So I guess it wasn't curling as much for them today either. And then I guess they were expecting the, expecting the ice to be, or they weren't, they were overcompensating for how slow it was because toward the end, they were starting to throw rocks deep. You started getting a lot of rocks uh, sliding into the house and sliding past Mm -hmm. the T line. Um, So they, They looked to be in control, and I'm talking about the U.S. now, their game this morning against the Netherlands. They looked to be in control after five and then didn't score again, and a couple of steals later, they dropped one to the Netherlands, and it's only going to get tougher for them from here on out, having already played Japan and the Netherlands. So hopefully they get used to ice conditions. We kind of saw the same thing happen to Jamie Sinclair in North Bay. Um, Struggled with getting used to Ice conditions at Worlds, uh, but she got it together and wound up making the semifinals. So hopefully we can see the same out of this team after they played so well at U.S. Nationals. Um, how do you think the? How do you think they're going to adjust the? Like how do you how do you adjust the ice like that when it's going to be in the 80s outside? There's no humidity, but it's going to be in the 80s. Are they going to be able to to get this fixed, or are we going to see like you said, kind of boring games where? They have to throw more hits since they can't get the eight feet of curl like they like when it's these world class events.
1: Uh, so well, they've got lots of tricks. So I'm, I, and so if it's a world you're gonna have top level ice makers. So it could be. Um, anything from changing the water which sounds a bit weird but talking to ice techs like they get very precise with like the acidity levels and the purity of the water and so though often for these events they may even kind of change up mid-event the water that they're using for the pebble or put another flood down Mm -hmm. uh it could be something as simple as texturing the rocks like they just run it over a little bit of sandpaper to get a bit more swing in that way could be playing around with the, the temperatures, the settings on the ice plant, just to kind of see what cycles it runs on. Like, um, you talk to ice techs, they got tons of tricks. And so it's 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 more, even though it's super scientific, like you see like the setups they have, uh, at these events, they've got like these laptops there, and they're kind of scanning mm-hmm. the temperature patterns across the entire ice surface. They got laser, um, laser thermometers measuring surface temperature. Uh, like, they will adjust over the course of the week. I'm okay. sure they'll they'll get it better. Um, I you think the challenge be- is... The cha- the, so the big challenge is they've not probably played... I'm trying to think of the last time they would have played a, an event of this type in 80 degrees Fahrenheit weather. Like, can you think of another time they've played or kind of played at a Vegas-type area in Spring?
0: Uh, it may... Did they ever have Worlds in Sochi? Because Sochi is actually the southernmost city to ever host a winter olympics and the area where they had the curling facility there wasn't in the mountain region it was in the coastal region so it didn't have the elevation either so i don't i don't know how warm things get in sochi in april in early to mid-april but that could be the only other place i could think of where it it might have gotten more and i don't even know if world's I don't even know if they've hosted a world's there um before or after the Olympics I know they hosted juniors they hosted the Junior championship there I think that was the that was kind of the preview event to see if they could to, to get used to making the ice at that venue but yeah I can't think of where on earth they would have had this event when it was gonna be eighty degrees outside
1: yeah so I think that that's probably their big challenge right like the ice Techs like it. Like their ideal is Saskatchewan in February, right? Mm-hmm. It's cold, no humidity, really dry, and uh, then you don't have to worry about humidity. Their their big things are humidity and then ambient temperature outside, right? If it gets too warm and too damp, that's when uh, frost and issues start to pop up. So I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure that 80 degrees outside kind of affects the temperature, and I'm, I'm not sure about the facility itself. Is it an older facility or?
0: Uh, it's relatively new. I don't think it's a super old arena.
1: Yeah, so that that could be those could be other reasons. Nothing,
0: there, but... n- nothing in Vegas is ever gets to be old. They usually demolish it and build a new casino if something starts to yeah. get too old in Vegas.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'll check it out when I'm there and see what it's what the facility looks like. Mm-hmm. But it's. Well,
0: the you know, U.S. hosted the U.S. hosted nationals in Jacksonville not too long ago, so you would think that they would have they would their ice techs would have a good idea of what to do when when it's that yeah. warm outside. Yeah, it's true. I mean, but I'm sure it's a
1: challenge, right? And, and they'll you talk to ice techs, they'll tell you that every venue's got its own challenges. That the weather changing's got its own challenges. They just adjust over time, mm-hmm. and uh, the players will also adjust a bit to the ice conditions too. I'm sure. So.
0: Yep, and it's. Something to keep an eye on, and here in the U.S. we will actually be able to keep an eye on it because all but one U.S. game is going to be available, so I'm excited about that. Uh, last night's game against Japan was live on NBCSN, so that was cool. Uh, it sounds like the there's two or three more round-robin games that are going to be actually on NBC Sports Network, but they're tape-delayed by 30 minutes, which... At that point I would almost rather have them just join it in progress there in the second or third end rather than being on a thirty minute delay for the whole game. So why are they doing a thirty minute delay? I have no idea. Is that to edit the F bombs? I don't <laughs> they might they might need to, <laughs> depending on who the US is playing. <laughs> we got a couple of not F bombs, but a couple of uh editable language uh early this morning during the Netherlands game. Oh uh, wow, yeah. And you, yeah, yeah, and you always get that during the Briar. So, uh, but yeah, they're yeah. I don't know what on earth is because they're they're like the eleven thirty a.m. games, the at least uh, East Coast time eleven thirty a.m. So I don't know, and they're starting them at noon. So I have no idea what NBC Sports Network could be showing until noon on a Thursday. Uh, that would cause them to tape delay curling by thirty minutes. But if you're only going to do it by thirty minutes, at that point, just do joint in progress and. Show me probably what it would that would be about what skips rocks in the second or the beginning of the third end,
1: yeah. Oh, 30 minutes in, two ends in. Mm -hmm. Uh, assuming they start right on the dot, I'm not sure, do they? Or
0: pretty close, okay. Yeah, so so the rest of the games are going to be on what is called the Olympic Channel, which is kind of new. Um, either on the Olympic Channel or the Olympic Channel app. So the Olympic Channel, which is owned by NBC, used to be the NBC Universal HD channel, Um, and I remember, you know, a few years ago, you would be able to get maybe one or two games on NBC Universal, but you had to know—basically, you had to know someone who got that channel and then be able to log in to watch those games. So it was. So this is the first time I can remember in a long time being able to watch games because the Olympic Channel. If you go to watch, if you go to watch the games on the Olympic Channel website or on their app, you don't have to sign in. Mm -hmm. Uh, The unfortunate. So I've had no problem watching games on OlympicChannel.com on my laptop, but the Olympic Channel app itself is complete trash like the feed jumps and I've heard people, I've seen people talking about this on Twitter, how bad the feed is when you're watching on the app. I have tried to cast it to, uh, to Apple TV so I could watch it on television um, from the app. And that works for about five minutes before it fails. Um, I'm going to try it on Chromecast. We have a Chromecast on one of our, on the upstairs television. So I'm going to try it with that, but I'm not too optimistic, but so it's available. Um, sometimes the stream is bad, uh, but so far, no problems watching on, you know, instead of, instead of on mobile, watching it, you know, on a regular laptop. So hopefully, now I can say from experience that that is not limited to the Olympic Channel app. The NBC Sports app is also awful. And I say that as someone who watches a lot of hockey and NASCAR, that it's impossible to watch those events either on the app or trying to cast it to a Chromecast or, a, or or Apple TV. It doesn't work there either, so that's more of an NBC issue than it is just this Olympic Channel.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's, it's weird.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: I, I kind of. So I use. I, so I guess it's geo because I'm in the U.S. I mean, I I actually think the WCF. YouTube channel is pretty strong. It is, really. Some, yeah, some I like watching commentators games on that. it's a bit uneven, but they've, they've actually got a few... Like, to me, Logan Gray, who's Scottish, he does a really good job. Mm-hmm. Sander, um, who's Norwegian, when you get him on, he's a good job. And if they get... If they used to get Ali Kreviazak and Anne Swisshelm. I'm not sure if they're up to it right now. But.
0: Anne, Anne did the morning game. She was doing, uh, I guess, color commentary for the WCF channel for the U.S.-Netherlands game. So I imagine... I imagine all the Olympic Channel games, she will be the color commentator in all the NBC Sports Network games. Pete Vinson will be the color commentator.
1: How's Pete? I haven't heard him do it ever. I, know, I think uh, Anne's pretty
0: good. Anne's, pr- Anne's pretty good. Anne's probably who they need to have doing the TV version. Um, Pete's fine, but I would say he's just fine.
1: <laughs> well, I, it, it's not surprising me. Pete's kind of an introvert. You know, and he, he just, seems he's just that not way. a talkative guy, right? Who's you know, uh, that's actually probably a good personality to have as a skip, but yeah. perhaps not the best personality to to play by play. Whereas Anne's extroverted A and B. I think she actually has a drama background or something, but she's a very good public speaker. So it's a personality thing too, right? Like not every curler is going to automatically become a a great play by play guy.
0: But they don't have Kmart. They don't have Kevin Martin. Nope. They can't afford him. Is that uh, it? I guess not. Uh, man, when when Hamilton retires, how good is he going to be on that? Like, yeah, Matt Hamilton, yeah, he could, he could, yeah, he could be doing Curly night in
1: America for a long time. He's he's exactly the kind of guy you want.
0: <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, speaking yeah. speaking of Hamilton, um, just real quick, he had an interview on Up Rocks with a friend of mine, Ryan Nagelhout. Uh, and they discussed one of the things that we kind of talked about, which is what is the next step for, for NBC and covering curling in the U.S. And we kind of brought up, well, would a slam work? Uh, and Ryan actually asked um, Matt Hamilton about that, and he kind of hinted that there might be maybe not a slam, but a Grand Prix series that goes around both the U.S. and in the world. Have you heard anything about that?
1: Yeah, so I don't know. So, okay. I, so a couple of things. I'm not 100% certain about the slams. W- one issue is the slams were bought by Sportsnet in Canada yeah. and there's a there's a law in Canada, a Canadian content law, which is basically um, any person who broadcasts, any company that broadcasts has to have a minimum percentage of made in Canada content. and. I don't know. This is just me speculating. But, you know, well, I do know that Sportsnet wanted the slams to fulfill their Canadian content requirement because okay. NHL hockey was too expensive. Um, but then but they I, got I, NHL I actually,
0: hockey.
1: They got NHL hockey as well, but it's basically like you, you, you need X amount of quote unquote Canadian content. I don't know if running a slam in the US violates the Canadian content rule. So there may be pressure to not do it in the US for that reason. So I'm, I'm not 100% certain um having a slam in the u.s would be great but this world series of curling or grand prix of curling it's basic the wcf's been kind of posting and hinting a bit about it if you kind of go to their web page for about a year now interesting they're trying to make this a bit like the grand prix in international figure skating you know are you a figure skating fan ryan
0: I am. I am not. <laughs> once every four years, I All watch. Right. I'm yeah, like a lot of people who watch curling once every four years. I watch figure skating once every four years.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way. But I do know they do something similar every year, where they have like these competitions in on the different continents, and then if you do well in that, you get invited to the final, and right, that's the, that's their format. So I think this is going to be a bit like that, where they'll have one in Europe in the america zone and the asia pacific zone
0: okay and then
1: the deal is because the sponsor is based in china and this is the kind of really fascinating angle for me is that the china the the finals got to be hosted in china every year so uh to me that's actually great i mean it may sound a bit weird from like the north american angle but i really think that While the U.S. is primed to grow now, the Asia-Pacific is kind of the other big region, right? Like it's already blowing up, right? Well, the quality of the elite teams is great. I don't think there's that much actual curling, curling in China. Like, uh, the Chinese junior team was at uh, a summer camp I I work at, coach at, um, uh, two summers ago. And the way they were describing it is there's basically – one rank attached to Harbin University, which is like a national sports university, mm-hmm. and like all the elite high performance teams practice there, but there's not really social or grassroots curling.
0: Yeah, because you always see with any of the elite teams, it always says that they're from Harbin.
1: Yeah, so that they're basically they've got a facility that's, that's paid for by the Chinese um, uh, Olympic association and they kind of have their program in place to identify do talent identification and they, they, the chinese system is very different you're basically you know it's a authoritarian state so yeah uh they basically identify people with athletic potential early on and my understanding is that a lot of the curling team were people who were kind of on a high performance sports progress going through sports schools etc but then couldn't quite make it on, say, the judo team or one of the other teams and said, well, we need curlers, so we're going to turn you into a curler kind of thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's a, it's a different setup than, say, the American or Canadian model.
0: Yeah, so, so very little grassroots curling going. Not You don't see many – so there probably aren't many curling clubs in J- China, although they were saying on the WCF feeds uh, last week just the astounding popularity in the Asia-Pacific region and just how many people are watching curling in Korea, China, and Japan.
1: Yeah, so to me that's the interesting thing is I, I actually think it's if they it, if ever gonna get club curling going at like a serious level in China, Japan, and Korea, uh, then you really do have a global game going. Mm-hmm right and that that then really changes things i think to me that's that's kind of if, even if you got to like the love like china someone told me that 40 million people watched the bronze medal game that china was in in 2014
0: i think I china. that too yeah 40
1: million right like just think about that that's just you know that's 40 i mean it's not that surprising in the sense that you know china's what three four times bigger than the u.s population mm-hmm. wise but well actually that is surprising because you only have 1.6 million for the gold medal game but
0: <laughs> well, yeah, US, well, right. So, also think of how many people are awake then, and yeah, and how many how too. many channels are available in the U.S. I don't know how television yeah. works in China, but if if everything's run by the state, I can't imagine there's that many options.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure either. So, but anyway, I'm just like, yeah, I could see if the game ever blew up in China at kind of a grassroots level, we started having curling clubs popping up, and you know all these cities, that's that's a real uh, that's a big game changer too.
0: Okay, so talking uh, talking about grassroots, but here in the US uh, another thing that we wanted to touch on as far as growing the game was we kind of mentioned this last week was how young um, how young are beginner leagues and our learn-to-curls kind of skewed and I'm interested to hear from from other people who might be listening how things have have skewed at your clubs if it has skewed younger. Um, But one of the things that we didn't mention was the big reason a lot of them were drawn to uh, curling, and it's the thing that kind of drew me to the game, was the social aspect. Um, So it wasn't necessarily because, oh, it's this, you know, kind of alternative sport that. Uh, not as many people are into, but it was more of like the social aspect, and a lot of people after both of the beginner leagues have stuck around to to broomstack with us. Um, so how? I mean, when at curling clubs you've been to, how have you encouraged broom stacking? How have you gotten people to, to to buy into? This isn't just something that you show up and throw rocks at. You show up, you throw rocks, and then you hang out and talk to each other. Like, how have you gotten to? How have you encouraged that at some of your other clubs? Well, it's
1: going to vary from place to place, right? So mm-hmm. one one thing that's interesting is in Scotland it's you you almost have to. Like it's <laughs> at a minimum you're expected if you especially if you win, if you win and take and don't even buy your opponent a drink, it's kind of seen as like super bad form. Like you uh-huh. just get like Like it's basically that's what you do. Doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be booze. You can just get a tea or whatever. But you're supposed to. You're expected to stick around after the match with the other team and then have a drink with them. So and that's basically how it's been in curling in Scottish curling probably for as long as they've had indoor rinks. If I don't, you know, not sure what it was like in the outdoor game. Uh, Canada varies from region to region, right? So, so you grew up kinda, in you grew up
0: in Montreal, right?
1: You grew up in Montreal Is very much the Scottish style. Like it was just expected that you would have a drink after the game and uh Even when even there. when
0: you were in juniors or was that more of stick around and have a diet Pepsi? Uh
1: even when I was in juniors, so I started curling in the men's league at sixteen, and even in juniors, like even at that age I was expected to uh Stick around. Like I'd have a Pepsi, but you have to. It's actually kind of funny and awkward. I played on this men's team, and they would always buy the beer, and I'd just buy a Coke. And, uh-huh. But we, I was still expected to stick around. Um, you go to Western Canada; that's not the case. Like the norm out there is you drink with your team. But like I played with a guy from Winnipeg, he said, "Oh, we'd never sit with the other team. We'd sit across the bar at the other end, get a pitcher, and just stare at them after we after the game. <laughs> like if they if they beat us, we'd just kind of be surly, and if we beat them, we'd just smirk, right? So." different attitude in winnipeg and vancouver and victoria were kind of the same way you didn't necessarily drink with the other team uh
0: well i'm glad i'm glad you you brought the i'm glad you brought the eastern canadian eastern canada in scotland style to oklahoma when you started that club because that's what got me hooked on this sport
1: yeah so it was actually myself and ron ron's from ottawa and we were pretty adamant when we were getting the club going, that you had to build the social aspect, like, and I think that's really important. That uh, I think broomstacking does a lot of stuff. I think the most important thing is that's actually how you get to make friends and know people
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the game, right? So it's basically it's a, it's a kind of almost a compulsory icebreaker, right? You play this team for two hours, you sit down, even if it's only a fifteen-minute chat, right? It's still like you you meet some people that way, and you, you're gonna get some pretty interesting conversations there about all kinds of topics so that that's good i think with oklahoma the challenge was there wasn't a natural bar right
0: yeah because we were so we we, to... we, for for background uh jonathan uh was one of the people who started oklahoma curling club in oklahoma city in uh in 2010 uh and it's an arena club still is an arena club uh along with the club that i curl at here in richmond uh but yeah like you said there's kind of a warm room, but it's not really a full bar and warm room like you see in a dedicated curling club.
1: Yeah, and so initially the rink manager kind of said he'd try to get some stuff in, but he didn't think there was enough money in getting it. He had like a keg set up, but didn't think there was enough money and didn't get enough sales. So, But he said, well, you guys can just bring beer if you want, and tailgates, for the hockey players mm-hmm. do. So we started tailgating both before and after games, and I think that, a very that helped a lot. very thing. Yeah, and that kind of helped build it a bit. And then we also sometimes would just go to one of the bars nearby after the game too. So, so that's kind of the. To me, that's like the challenge for an arena club. Often, is there's not necessarily a built-in place to broom stack.
0: Yep, and that's yeah. kind of the, that's kind of the way we are here in Richmond. There's also not the the bar options around the rink that we're at aren't great either. Uh, the good thing is they do allow us to stick around in, cause we're, when we curl, we're the last people on the ice usually. So we're allowed to kind of stick around while they're finishing up and getting everything together. And then occasionally, occasionally, especially early in our season, we curl kind of late in the year. We're kind of just getting started. Uh, But early in our season, uh, there's at least one men's league game, maybe two men's league games after we're done, but we're allowed to kind of hang around in the, you know, in the open area and, and drink and hang out with each other. So how, I mean, is there, is there a way to encourage broom stacking or encourage the social aspect of this sport without necessarily alienating the the teetotalers that might be in your club? Because was, that, was, that was kind of an issue in Oklahoma because Oklahoma, it's more likely to have uh, people that are just completely against drinking in, in any situation.
1: Well, I mean, I think the point is, and yeah, we did deal with that issue. The point is, you may say, it doesn't have to be an alcoholic beverage. You've just got to buy your opponent a drink. So if it's a Coke, it's a Coke, or tea or coffee is fine too. The point's not to get drunk. The point's to uh, the point talk is to meet other people after yeah, the yeah. game. Yeah, meet other people, especially
0: especially the people just getting into this game. And that was what was big for me getting started in Oklahoma was it was us talking about how do how are we getting better? How are we, you know, things that we things that we've noticed of. You know, how to, how to improve what we're doing, um, you know, anything like that. And the, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the tailgating was something that started when the club first started, and unfortunately, it went away. I, I think the people who kind of led that wound up leaving the club, so it was more of post- Uh, post curling broom stacking instead of because we would tailgate that's kind of what you do you tailgate before the sporting event so we would show up an hour before we had the ice and we'd grill burgers and hot dogs and hang out and then we'd go out and play against each other and then head home and so we did it was almost reverse broom stacking
1: yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what. Happened. So we did a couple other things. We also would have different teams cater for each week. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we, we were kind of running two leagues back to back, we'd kind of have the changeover and kind of you know have the people in the later draw show up early, and then people in the the early the the late draw kind of show up, stick around, kind of thing. Have a little bit of a crossover effect, which was nice. I mean, I think there's there's stuff like that you can do. So some things we did do is. We had we had someone who was a social coordinator, and that their whole job was to make sure that those parties and stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of rotated around, make it potluck style. Like each week, a team is responsible for bringing some snacks, and that kind of helped. Um, we'd figure out ways to kind of incorporate different events into the league. So, if it's St. Patrick's Day, can we do a St. Patrick's kind of theme thing? If it's you know Easter, Easter egg hunt, right? So. A couple, a couple like kind of gimmicks like that, which may not sound all that important, but were kind of good. I think we we we'd celebrate the club's anniversary every year.
0: Yeah, that was get a cake, right? <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> and it's not like it was just get a cake and say happy birthday, right? Just go to the homeland and get a cake yeah. from the bakery. It's relatively, like yeah,
0: relatively cheap, but kept everyone involved in. You know, ba- basically involved in the, you know, making sure that the club survived, making sure that the club thrived. So I think that was, you know, you're it's instilling pride uh, in, in being a part of the club. I think that's important. And I think that that's something that broomstacking does is it's not just, oh, it's my sports league. It's, you know, these are these are my friends that I hang yeah. out with once a week is what you really want to get involved with these people who are starting and. I think that that is what is bringing younger people into curling in our area, uh, and I know that's that it might be an issue at some of the more established clubs is getting finding ways to become younger, and so if you find a way to market the fact that you do broom stack, I think you'll be able to 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 bring in younger people. Part of that is if you're not. Active on social media, you need to be, and that's something that's kind of my my line of work. Um, You need to be on Facebook. You don't You don't necessarily need to be on Twitter, but if you have someone who is who is enthusiastic about it and who you trust to run your Twitter account, then go ahead and do it. Um, I ran the Twitter account. I ran Facebook, Twitter, and all the social media for the Oklahoma Club for a while. Uh, We have someone else. Uh, doing the social media for Curling Club of Virginia here in Richmond, but they don't really monitor or use the Twitter account. I tried to get them to give me the password, and probably rightfully so, they said no. <laughs> that, uh, may, that may have been weird. <laughs> that may have been well. That may have been a good call on their part. But well, um, I don't know. I guess
1: my attitude was this: <laughs> um, the other weird trick. To kind of keep people involved in the club is try to get them to do things, right? And and mm-hmm. figure out what they actually do. So if you're you're a PR uh, in your day job, and so we're like, well, we need PR. Um, you know, try. To, that's kind of how you got looped into the social media stuff, yeah. right? Like like one of our lucky breaks early on, honestly, was this guy Rex Oates, who was radio producer. And he was like one of the guys who, sh- there's like six people who showed up at the original meeting. And honestly, Rex never threw a stone in his life, just wanted to curl. But the fact that he knew how to write a press release, had tons of buddies in the Oklahoma City media, mm-hmm. it kind of helped us get the word out really quickly. And he was kind of great for telling me how to do media hits and kind of talk me through stuff. And he'd tear me down if I if I screwed something up <laughs> <laughs> and give me some pointers pretty quickly. And so I actually learned a lot from him. But... The point is, when you're trying to incorporate new people in the club, you figure out what they do in their day lives, what other skills or talents they have, and then how can the club draw on those, right? That's the... That that's me. Is kind of important key. So so if if I was the club of Virginia and you're a Twitter guru, I, <laughs> I don't know. Would about give that. You the, <laughs> I probably would
0: give you the the keys to the Twitters and see what happened. Right. Well, so. I, I haven't I haven't been here that long. And you kind of if you're gonna give someone keys to the Twitter account, you have to know you have to trust them because it's probably easier to get in trouble on Twitter than any other social media uh, channel. Um, So you have to have someone who can maintain – who can both have fun with a Twitter account and maintain the tone that you would like. So like if you're marketing your club, I recommend advertising on Facebook because most people – almost everyone has a Facebook account. Uh, Facebook is starting to get a lot older, but – Everyone at least checks it every now and then. All most of the younger people are on Instagram. The good thing is, if uh, they're now Facebook basically owns Instagram now, so when you go and advertise through Facebook, at the same time you can have your ads running on Instagram, so you can hit both the older generation who kind of spends most of their time on Facebook, as well as hitting the young, the younger generation that's on Instagram. And that's kind of why I also don't think that it's a hundred percent necessary to have. A very active Twitter account. Um, yeah. If you're on Facebook, with with Facebook, you want to be basically an asset to your community, and that's kind of how you build a following uh, through Facebook. So it can't just be sell, sell, sell. It can't just be you know come to our learn to curl, come join our league, all that. You have to you have to be able to post things that aren't hard sells that people kind of view your facebook page as a place to go to get news and information in addition to finding out um information about your club so be i don't know be a community asset uh be a place where people can go and talk about curling um so, you know, post things about the Olympic team, post things about what's going on with worlds, post the schedule that the U.S. Curling Association puts out to watch the game so that people are are talking about it uh, on your Facebook page. Uh, on Twitter, uh, I would say be conversational, um, you know, search, you know, follow, follow people that are involved in curling. Try to talk to them. Don't be offended if they don't follow you back or they don't answer you. Um, you know, like things that you consider interesting, That's a way to get into their mentions uh, if you're just starting a Twitter account for your club. Um, but mainly just just be willing to be conversational on Twitter. That's why you need someone who's kind of enthusiastic about it and willing to give it some attention. Because uh, if it's only going to be a deal where you log into the club Twitter account once a month to post when the next learn to curl or when your league dues are due, um, that's not gonna work um, at that point then yeah just go ahead and folk but the, the two that you really need to focus on are, are Facebook and, and Instagram that's gonna hit that's gonna hit you know the widest swath of people I think
1: Yeah so you don't think Twitter is all that useful for club recruiting?
0: I would uh, Twitter has a very low ROI a very low return on investment um, huh. like a Twitter you look at it a Twitter follower, because they do all these studies, and a Twitter follower is worth a lot less than a Facebook like or an Instagram follower, because uh, because uh. a tweet a tweet has a very l- small lifespan. Even though now Twitter's kind of rolled out this deal where it's you know tweets you have mi- you have missed or people you may find interesting. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, um, you know, the way that they roll things into your feed isn't necessarily. Um, by when they were posted. It's um, you know, whatever, their, um, you know, whatever their algorithm is for feeding you stuff, it isn't necessarily when uh, you're not seeing the latest Facebook posts or the latest Instagram posts from, your, the, from the people you follow. So it, a Facebook post and an Instagram post have a lot longer lifespan, uh, whereas a tweet uh, kind of disappears relatively quickly. Uh, so that's why I don't think that it's necessary for recruiting. Although I do recommend, uh, like during the Olympics, if you have someone willing to be active, you know that's when people are going to be talking about curling who maybe don't know that there is a curling club in your area. Because um, when I talk to people, you know, I would always ask uh, when people came to our learn to curls when they the people who I had at my station. Uh, I would say, hey, how did you hear about us? And almost all of them said either they saw curling on the on television and Googled curling club in Richmond, or they saw one of our Facebook ads. A few yeah. of them, a few of them had said, "Oh, I saw you guys on TV when we did our big media push." Uh, but for the most part, it's either been a Facebook ad or they saw that curling existed and Googled to see if there was a club in Richmond.
1: Yeah, so that's uh, yep. that's all good.
0: Yeah, so the- I mean,
1: I think. Yeah, so when we were starting Oklahoma Curling Club, it was all, it basically all through Facebook. Um, we didn't we didn't really do many ads to be honest. We just kind of built a network pretty quickly through Facebook. Like mm-hmm. and I think that's what Facebook's good at is because each kind of person's friend list yeah. is you know it's their friends or their network, and you can start kind of getting overlap a network. It let us find. Helped us find curlers pretty quickly. Like that—that yeah. that was goal number one. Was actually to find other curlers in the area and see if they wanted to put the work in to get a club going. And then goal number two was to kind of recruit new people to curling. But that was also goal was just, just to get about twenty people.
0: That was also eight years ago, and since then, Facebook has made it a lot harder to build um, to build a number of page likes unless you're willing to spend money. Um, Because even if you have – I run into it in my everyday job. You can have however many Facebook likes to your page, but if you send something out and don't put a little bit of money behind it, uh, it's not going to reach that many people um, Mm -hmm. unless it's something that's getting a lot of likes and comments – and it's because Facebook's algorithm now tries to suppress pages because it wants to – They Facebook wants to encourage you to spend money with Facebook to advertise your page even though you have X number of likes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's that's kind of different. So did you guys have like a, a ad kind of campaign, put some money behind it for the Olympic spend or yeah, Olympic they, bump?
0: Yeah, Curling Club of Virginia definitely did that um, and they were – they were very smart about it. So most of the people who have, like I said, they've said that they either googled us or they saw they saw the Facebook ads. The Facebook ads hit a lot of people who wound up signing up for a Learn to Curl, and now we're now we're trying to integrate those people into our league. And that brings us to our Professor Havocroft, uh, as yet unnamed segment, the unnamed Professor Havocroft segment. Um, Integrating newcomers into your curling league or into your curling club. Um, I'm sure all of your clubs have had a big rush after the Olympics and the success of Team Schuster winning gold. Uh, We definitely saw it here in Richmond. Um, So now hopefully your club is going to have a big influx of curlers willing to take the plunge and join the club. But now how do you integrate them in with people who have already been a part of your club for years and years Um, Jonathan you've been a lot of different places you've curled at one of the St. Paul Curling Club the oldest curling club or is it the biggest what's it's claim to fame
1: it's probably the biggest I mean I don't know I don't know certainly it was like like four or five years ago I have no idea what's going on now um, but, but you've curled 12- Yeah,
0: you started curling in Montreal, so you started curling in Canada. You've curled in yeah. this enormous club in the St. Paul Curling Club, a very prestigious curling club. You started yeah. a, started a club in Oklahoma City and now you're Don't over forget over, Dallas. Over, yeah.
1: DFW, baby.
0: That's right. DFW, I've, <laughs>
1: I've done uh, Victoria Curling Club <laughs> in Victoria BC. Uh, Richmond Curling Club and oh, what was the name of the place Port Not Virginia not,
0: not Richmond, Virginia obviously <laughs> no
1: no Richmond Richmond, Vancouver uh, what was the name of that other place Marpole mm-hmm. uh, Port Coquitlam Victoria oh man what else do I got and now Fenton's Rank
0: All right. in England so which one of them which of them have been the best as in at integrating new members or maybe integrating uh people from who came you know in a post-olympic rush uh getting them into the club with established veteran curlers so the worst are definitely the
1: canadian clubs i think (laughs) to be honest i think it's like they don't they don't really know what they're doing because those clubs (laughs) have been so established they've got their way of doing it uh and to be honest, there's been a bit of atrophy in the game, and clubs going under in Canada. And I think mm-hmm. that Can- Canadian clubs are really behind the times. I think in many ways, uh, the U.S. clubs are better at it. Um, I think it's, it's like to me, all right. The best, the like dedicated club was St. Paul, and that that's got to do with their history, where they almost went under in the '80s and. They were down to like 175 members or something. Like, I really, like, do we close it? And oh, wow. curling would have died in the Twin Cities in the 80s. It was it was that close. Like, major tax bills, all that. And basically, 40 or 50 members there were hardcore curlers. Spent like a good 5 to 10 years inculcating two values into the club. So one, when I was there, I remember Dex, who was the, the rink manager, all the time would say, Everyone's got to go out and recruit. It's almost like you know, you've seen Glenn Gary, Glen Ross always be closing, always <laughs> be recruiting, ABR, always be recruiting, always figure out ways to get people in the door. And then what they had there was a handicap system in place, which would frustrate me to no end, but was probably um, brilliant in the sense that it kind of made anyone have a shot of playing against anyone. So. If you're like Rich Ruinen, who used to, play, used to play against in St. Paul Curling Club, whatever team he was on, they'd always start down three points start of the game. Oh wow! Right, and so a, a team of brand new curlers would have a shock; so they got a three point lead, and you know, Rich would have to kind of come out and you know win by more than three to win the game. So I thought, I thought the handicap system was great. They also would put on development leagues or beginner leagues, uh, and that's that's kind of really where they had their bump when I was there. where They, they said, we're just going to run a Sunday night beginner league for new curlers and have a few coaches out there. And and then that one filled up so quickly, a year or two later, they said, well, we'll have another one right after. So all of a sudden, Sunday night became, which wasn't really being used for curling, became this beginner league. And then it became a five and under league. And now it's just a regular league. Mm-hmm. And I think they're at the point now where they can't really take on new members. It's kind of hard to get in there. Um, but it kind of having beginner's leagues and having paths on and then making sure that the newer curlers can play in a situation where um, they're playing perhaps against some of the more experienced curlers, but the handicap system is one good way to address that or a ladder system or some other way of kind of making sure people don't get destroyed. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it's possible to St. Paul for a complete beginner to be playing the guy who's throwing, you know, who's skipping uh Team USA. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> but they have a system in place where the handicap makes it possible that um, that team, maybe they don't have a shop, but at least they're not going to be destroyed, right? Maybe they lose 10 5 as opposed to 10 1. 10 yeah. Yeah.
0: So that, so had on on clubs that, because I've never been a part of a club that is a dedicated club that has, you know, Monday men's, Wednesday Tuesday Women's League. Wednesday is our Elite League. Um, so clubs that only have maybe one draw a week or two draws a week, um, how do you get those beginners into those leagues? Do you do the the handicap system like you said, or do you force teams to, to split up and bring newcomers under their wing? I know that that... And I'm probably guilty of being part of the problem uh, in Oklahoma was you get used to playing with your team every year, every season. Um, And then after the Olympics, you have to bring people who are new to the game into the club and you don't want them to go out and get destroyed every week. So, do you force those teams to kind of split up and say, "No, you're going to become two different, you're going to become two separate teams, and you're going to take on two beginners"? Do you do you get to a point where you have to do that if you're a, a club that isn't playing every single night of the week?
1: Well, that's always a big big issue, right? And I think Dallas, I think the the big advantage when I was getting the club going in Oklahoma was there weren't many preset teams, right? So it was all yep. newbies to begin with. But at, like you said, after a little while. You know, people have been doing it a while. They're going to have a big advantage over complete beginners. And so mm-hmm. that's that's a stage a club reaches. So Dallas was kind of at that stage when I was there in 2010. And what we did there was we had this big influx. And so we created three leagues, basically. So one was a league where you can put in any combination of players you want. Okay, And then one was kind of the club match manager would organize the teams and you the the only thing you could put down is who you did not want to play with which was always (laughs) interesting to go through so that's basically if you really couldn't stand someone let us know and you could say who you wanted to play with but uh, the awkward thing is when someone wanted to play with someone who didn't want to play with them but we kept that kind of secret so you got to be kind
0: of a bit discreet
1: uh how successful
0: were you at keeping that secret
1: I never told. I just thought it was funny. I just laugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then that we they basically had a beginners league as well. So that was the 2010 cycle. I'm not sure what they're doing these days, but I think even talking to people who are members of that club, they they say that 2010 was really um, the year where the club kind of took off. Like before that, it was it was kind of struggling around 20 to 30 members, mm-hmm. and really. You know, they could they could pay the bills, but weren't, um, didn't have a big membership base, and just were kind of like always one bad break from going under, and I think they've been pretty sta- steady and stable since, and I know they're talking dedicated ice, I'm not sure where they are with that, but... So it sounds to me like Virginia might be about where Dallas was in 2010, right? Like kind of had a club going for how long's it been? How long's the club been there?
0: Club's been the club has been here since 2011, and you know we did last season. I think we had enough for six teams, so we ran a draw on three. No, we had seven. So. You had three sheets going, and everyone had one week where you had a buy, which worked out because if you had one week where three of your four people are on vacation, because we usually curl in the summer, because that's when we can get cheap ice time. Yeah. So if you have a week where three of four members of a team are going to be gone, you give them the buy that week. Uh, so that kind of worked out. But now we're going to have enough to not only fill a full draw, but fill a couple of draws. Um, And they're going to keep the same way that they did the teams, which was, you know, you kind of give an idea of who you'd like to curl with, but really the skips are going to get together. And for, you know, maybe not necessarily a full on draft, but the skips are going to get together and kind of decide who the teams are. You're not really sitting there and fully forming uh, your own team. Uh, Draft works Um, pretty
1: well, too. At Montreal West, used to do draft for a couple of competitions, and that was the match manager would pick out the skips, and there would always be a bit of issue around that. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, you just go upstairs and have a draft, which actually I kind of like. And then they basically did like a snake ladder. So if you picked first overall uh, with the number one pick, it would basically go the person who picked last in the first round would get first pick in the second round all the way back. So kind of a snake system. It's basically fantasy baseball. Yeah, basically, and it, it would produce pretty balanced teams. So I, I think a draft system is totally fine, yeah. and either either public or private. You know, I think private's probably pretty good because someone's being yeah, yeah, last picked, and you yeah. don't want that out there. But.
0: Oh, it's definitely yeah, definitely in private. You never want to yeah. yeah, you never want to sub subject anyone to that. Except the only time you want to subject someone to that would be back when the NHL would draft their all-star teams and every year you knew Phil Kessel was going to be the last pick that's the only time <laughs> that's the only time you want that to be public is when it's going to be on live television and you know ahead of time who you're going to embarrass
1: <laughs> well, it's good. That's I kind of wish basketball would do that. Now they're doing the pick teams. They should broadcast the draft of the, the two teams, right? That'd yeah, pretty... they should,
0: but they they didn't want to embarrass whoever was going to be the last pick or they didn't want to reveal what the order They would. They didn't reveal what the order was. They kind of just said LeBron picked this team and Curry picked this team. And yeah, and there was a rumor there
1: was Westbrook was the last picked, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he got pissed. So yes.
0: That's good. Or no, it yeah. was someone it may or may not have been true but in order to make him have a good game they told him he was the last pick so he, <laughs> that's the best thing Just to, to do piss him off. Is, yeah you have to tell him yeah you have to motivate westbrook you have to make him yeah if you motivate westbrook by letting him know that hey uh you know you were the last pick in this thing yeah he's going to go off <laughs>
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so
0: i having done both having done in oklahoma city where we kind of stuck with our same team uh basically to try and win the league uh and having done the ccva version where you go through the draft i kind of like this version i kind of like especially as someone and i can say this as someone who came into this club from from outside as an outsider um you know it was a way to meet different people in the club was I didn't know who my team was going to be. It was a good way, you know, it went and it was, I had the same team for the whole year for the whole season, but ahead of time, I didn't know who my teammates were going to be. So it kind of forced me to meet everyone in the club basically.
1: Um, yeah, that's and, pretty yeah. good. And it, yeah.
0: and it, it brought in the newcomers um, by putting them on teams with veterans who could both um, make sure that they weren't going to get crushed every week and, and kind of give them pointers as as the year went on. I think the only the only exception for that, and this is this actually might be my proudest moment in curling was it was a group of four who they were my learn to curlers um, from the class that I taught, and all four of them joined the club. So I was a hundred percent on that, which felt great. And then they decided that they all wanted to curl together because they were all friends. Yeah. And the first week of regular league. They played this team that was all veterans, and they beat them. And that was that might be my proudest moment was the people that I taught learned to curl their first ever league game. They went out and beat a team full of vets, so that was pretty awesome. Ah,
1: sweet, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, the so I think I know like when you have this happen, it's it's good, right? You've got a team of people that come in and they all want to play together. the on, The only issue with that is there's probably one person driving that process, mm-hmm. and if they they bail you might lose all four yeah right whereas if they're kind of a bit more integrated and learn to play with other people then maybe if one or two drop out you don't lose the whole
0: that's a good point uh
1: gang i I remember these i don't remember you remember the guys the broom stackers oh yeah
0: the guys who who went out yeah they went all out they uh this was a team in oklahoma although that That was also the very beginning of that league where we were all newcomers, basically. But this one team, like, went all out, bought brooms, bought shoes, bought loudmouth golf curling pants. Um, But they really, they kind of flamed out after, because I guess the main guy, uh, the main guy decided he didn't want to do it anymore or something like that.
1: Yeah, he just decided, you know, you lost all four, right? So. Um, the advantage of mixing up people getting to know each other is if one person goes you don't lose all four right so it's not and that, that's the challenge when you're a small club with like 30 40 members losing even one team mm-hmm. is a pretty big blow to the just the operation of it so what you want is people basically there's two tricks to it so step one is you want people there making friends with other people in the league new friends so that they, mm-hmm. they're they now kind of tied in to the, the club they feel like more of a member of the club rather than just a team that's curling together in a league right there's a, there's a difference there and then the second thing is you want them to take ownership of the club so you want to figure out ways really early on to get them doing some kind of volunteer thing what whatever it is right because that, that interestingly kind of makes them have a bit more stake in the club and feel a bit more responsible for it and those are In my experience the two keys to retention is that people aren't locked in cliques just coming with their four buddies and not really making friends with anyone else and if they're they're kind of volunteering a bit with the club doesn't have to be a big task but you know can you be the guy who takes the rocks out this week can you be the one you want to learn how to pebble right like like simple tasks like that five ten minutes but that then gets them in as well and that that those are kind of the two tricks i think to kind of get people so that's why if I was running the Virginia club, I would give you the Twitters right away.
0: Because
1: that's, like, that's I mean, I, I wouldn't worry about you leaving curling, obviously, but it's like, oh, someone here actually does this for a living. They have a skill at it. Let them do it, right? Uh, like bigger...
0: I wouldn't, although I wouldn't trust me either. Let's be no, honest. Oh, you wouldn't. You just get a drunk <laughs> in the middle of the night. and I can only end poorly.
1: You've... Is there like a is there like a rival club? Oh to...
0: no. I'm mainly joking, but no, no, yeah. there's not really a rival. No, we've uh, there's not a rival club. We've done a lot helping the Roanoke Club get uh, get underway, which has been awesome. They had a big learn to curl yesterday uh, that apparently went really well. So hopefully the Roanoke Club um, basically becomes a you know a success story as the as the sport continues to grow here in Virginia. They've I've also heard people talking about starting. Uh, starting a club uh, more on the eastern basically in the what we call the 757 which is the Hampton Roads area which is Hampton, Norfolk, Virginia Beach that area because okay. a couple of the guys that I'm coaching for lack of a better word um, drive up from Newport News which is about an hour east of Richmond on Interstate 64 they come all the way from Newport News um, and a couple of these guys are Brewers which has been awesome but yeah, one wow, of, and sweet. yeah, one of the one of the guys that who is already um who has already paid for the main league that will start after this beginner league, yeah, he's gonna drive once a week from Newport News to to curl with us on Thursday nights, which is pretty is great. Is he a pro brewer or just homebrew? Uh, he's a pro brewery. He's, a, he's ah, with sweet. a. Ah, Yes, it is quite. Oh, sweet. you've got a.
1: You've got your league sponsor right and that's, there.
0: Yeah, and that's why that's why the <laughs> broom stacking definitely appealed to those guys as well. Was it yeah. they, they view it as also a way to to bring their beer that they brew and and pass it around to the people in the club to you know who may not have heard of their breweries since they're down in William. Their their breweries are in Williamsburg
1: yeah and that's yep. i mean we had the same thing with uh jeremy who's a member of oklahoma right yep. like getting he owns a bar and that's actually a great synergy right like yep. he was happy to let us have parties there up in the bar room he was getting a bit of business and the members would then know oh that's our member owns that bar they're more yep. likely to go to that bar than another one i definitely was <laughs> yeah i know definitely right oh, you know Jer- jeremy was great He uh he's got he's, it's got one of these bars like 100 different kinds of beers and he can yep. you know walk you through all of them. You learn a lot yeah. from them too. So I think that's the other key is is getting to know what your new members do and it's amazing the diversity of talents. The my other favorite story was we had this big fight about icing because the sheets were like the different sheets were like terrible. A sheet D was just notoriously yep. bad. And it's actually a seriously hard mathematical problem to figure out how to distribute ice equally in a league. Like I, I, I was pulling my hair out. I can't do this. And what was the name of the big guy who was the computer programmer? Eric. Eric. I'm just venting about this. And Eric's like, Well, why would you do it that way? You just write a program. Right? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how to write a program. He's like, Oh he's like, What do you want? He just like writes it down. Yeah. I get home and there's an email from him. He's like here, are the, he basically had worked out, he wrote a program that could figure out, he's like, here's how you optimize a six-team league, and he had it, basically had a program, took took him 20 minutes to code it, and yeah, uh, you know, that spit story. out every single possible <laughs> solution to every single thing, right? And it, it's random, but... So a guy who, you know, he was working on some crazy VR three-dimensional thing. I have no idea. For for him, him, it was was the
0: easiest thing to do. It took him 15 minutes. But for us, it was something that you had spent hours trying to figure out how to distribute. Okay, you're on the bad sheet this week. You're on the good sheet this week. (laughs)
1: yeah and it's so to me that's part of the key is getting to know what your members do especially the new ones that obviously they're gonna be intimidated about not being the best curlers but Mm -hmm. if they can see that what they bring from outside the club has value in the club that will that will bring that'll be good both for the club and for them
0: yep great points jonathan and I guess we'll end with a discussion that might be the, the, the part of this discussion that might be most important to clubs, which, which is affecting their bottom line. When do you ask for the financial commitment to basically pay the club dues to become a full-fledged member of the club? Because the way it was in Oklahoma City was you had to pay, pay the annual club dues On top of your regular your league fees so we would run what three to four leagues per year and then on top of those you had an annual fee to be considered a member of the club the way cc the way curling club of virginia does it is you only have to pay that if you want to be a part of the gncc or usca events so at what point do you go from bringing these people into the club to finally asking for that financial commitment to be a member of the club?
1: I See, I think you should ask the member. Uh, to me, there's value in being a member of a club and you want to communicate that to the person, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, the mem- my, my attitude is the membership fee should be up front. Yeah, so you've got insurance. So the issue is this. You need the insurance, which for an arena club is super valuable yes. because... God, one wipeout, one bad accident, one lawsuit. If you're on the board, you're liable. So it's it's uh, like the, you need the insurance. So to me, I mean, those are all kind of costs affiliated with it. But I think also to psychologically, you've joined the club, you've committed this money to it, mm-hmm. you're now a member. And I think that making people take ownership of the club early on really matters. I mean, the big debate is how much do you charge? So there's the USCA membership fee. And you. All, I, think you I think one thing one instinct a lot of kind of people when they get on the board um, is to kind of give stuff away from, for free to entice people in. Mm-hmm. In my experience, that never works. You're just wasting your time. That Like actually, it, you don't want to be like fleecing people, but you always want to make sure that your costs are covered plus a bit more. You always, you always want to have a pretty clear understanding of what the break-even point is for the club. And the break-even point should be less than full capacity. Like, uh, by break-even point, I mean, what's the point at which the club's taken in the money to cover its costs right for the renting the ice the insurance and all that so
0: which is different yeah it's different for arena clubs like ours or the one in oklahoma city versus a dedicated curling facility then you have to worry about you know keeping the basically the chart the the cost associated with keeping the lights on and and all that as opposed to with an arena club uh your main cost is the cost of renting that ice time
1: Yeah, exactly. So in some ways, it's kind of simple to figure out the break-even point for an arena club. Mm -hmm. But the big problem with an arena club is if you don't reach your break-even point, your club is not going to be able to curl. (laughs) So – and raising fees is really tricky. I think it it causes um, consternation. Obviously, you got a bit of bite back. So ideally, you want to – to me, like this is going to sound – my biggest regret at Oklahoma – was I set the break even point at 26.5 members when we're setting up the fees. And in retrospect, my big mistake was it should have been at 24. So 24 people for a league, that should have been the break even point. Okay. Which means you can then run, if you don't get full capacity, you can run six, you can run six team league and have the extra sheet open for practice ice or something else. But Boy, that made it that, that sounds like a really minor difference, and actually it was only a difference of a couple of bucks on each person's fees, but that difference in, say, two or three bucks for league fees was often the difference between us being able to run a full league or not. Oh, wow. it's, it's just, you, you learn pretty quickly how, fin, how fine the margins are. Uh, so to me, that's the issue is not. Uh, to me, I'm like, yes, you should have a membership fee, an annual membership fee that covers the costs plus a bit more. I think we, we put in like $10 per person for the club and whatever the USCA dues were at Oklahoma. And then the league fees should always be breaking even at about 75%. And that then lets you build up a little bit of a surplus. Uh, the rainy day fund. <laughs> You, you you do need a rainy day fund, and especially right now because it seems so – because money is basically falling from the sky if you're running an arena club. You need to bank that money because yep. in two years' time, that's when you're going to have to make hard decisions to get your club from – get your club to the next Olympic bump, right? So now you just bank the money, and then, uh, then hopefully you can kind of sustain things and do interesting things mm-hmm. later on in the cycle.
0: So is – so someone who came through learned to curls in February and March do you ask for the club fee now or do you ask for it say July 1st depending on when your fiscal year is
1: uh, I so I so you, when do your league
0: start uh, a couple weeks but I'd I I think... make it
1: at the start of the league and have it run through for the next twelve months that's what I would do what's that I would I would make it the the membership fee tied to the start of your league and make the membership run for the next year. Okay, So they pay it one time and then, so if your leagues are starting in a couple weeks, that should be the start of your membership year, right? Do you do uh, leagues during the fall and uh, spring and winter or no?
0: Depends on if the ice is available, basically. Like, I paid my league, they started collecting league fees, I think January 1, which is weird because that's in the middle of curling season for everyone else basically yeah. <laughs> but our you know our season starts in the spring so it's different but uh so they I, like i paid my league fee back in january
1: okay yeah I, I would tie the year to whatever the natural cycle of the club was so oklahoma because we started in the autumn like i think september 1st was the start of our membership year and we, we had some weird rule that you could kind of prorated over the course of the year or something but uh, for people who joined late but um, yeah so to me I'd be like okay that's when you start the league that's when you pay the membership fee so the memberships you have to be a member to play in the leagues is basically how I'd run it and then they pay it for the year and then they just renew it the next year and uh there's a whole bunch of stuff about how you pay the USCA, but that's probably too
0: technical for us yeah, to that's, get into. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit for a podcaster. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess, you know, in summation it's make people feel like this is your their home, their community. Uh, make them feel like what they bring from outside the club uh, has a benefit to the club increase that sense of belonging and yeah we'd, we've talked about that uh for about an hour now so i think we'll i think we'll move on uh jonathan next time we talk to you i believe will be you will be in las vegas so that'll be fun i uh, can't wait to hear how the weekend goes there at uh the world curling championships uh you can subscribe to rocks across the pond on itunes google play stitcher tune in uh on soundcloud oh you know, like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Curling Podcast, drop us a line on Twitter, drop us a line at rocksacrossthepond the pond at gmail.com. We want to hear how how the post-Olympic bump has gone for your club. We want to hear about what your team what your club has done to, to bring new members into the fold. Uh, and we, we hope we can share your success stories. So thank you so much for listening to us and we will catch you next time.